ask, uh, I'm going to ask Steve. Come on up. Good evening. My name is Steve Grantham. I'm from Pleroma Bible Church in Tullahoma, Tennessee, and I am extremely grateful and humbled to be here. Um, I will, at the outset, warn you, though, that I have been trained in hermeneutics by Dr. Ray Montragon, and I have now learned that you can interpret three minutes literally as eight minutes and 51 seconds. <laughs> so you can be assured that I should be able to stay within the three-minute time frame. <clears throat> Over 45 years ago, uh, God rescued me spiritually when I went off the rails. A friend of mine introduced me to the teaching, the expositional, literal hermeneutic teaching uh, from Bob Thiem. And then over 30 years later, uh, he rescued, well, I wouldn't say rescued me, he provided another pastor, uh, Clay Ward, uh, whose ministry that my wife and I have been under since then. And we were able to retire four years ago and move to Tullahoma, Tennessee, and be part of that local church. That's the reason that we moved, was to be part of that local church, because we did not have one where we were. Um, and it did not even enter my mind that I might actually be taking seminary classes when I retired. But a couple of years ago, uh, when I really learned and, and had the time, the time opened up for various reasons, but when time opened up and I learned that Schaefer seminary courses were available and I didn't have to move and I could take them and be mentored by Clay and stay there in Tullahoma and keep up the interaction that I had with the, with the people that I know and love there. Uh, that seemed like too good an opportunity to pass up. And I started thinking about the potential for teaching small groups and how much it could help me in furthering my own edification as well as interacting with other people, whether mentoring, teaching, uh, witnessing, evangelizing, or whatever. And so the model just really resonated with my heart. Uh, in my previous job, we put a lot of emphasis on succession training, leaders training leaders, preparing leaders, preparing their successors. And the Schaefer model is just really where it needs to be. And it just really resonated with me. Not only that, being able to stay in your local church and get that mentoring and have the, con the flexibility and so forth with the courses. Uh, I've had the opportunity to take the framework courses, uh, Greek. Um, after almost two years, I'm almost finished with the first year of Greek. Uh, hermeneutics, as I've mentioned, and I'm also still working on history of doctrine. Uh, the academic rigor is there. If you take it for credit, uh, you have to work, and it's everything I would expect from a good, high-quality seminary. So uh, I can't say enough good things about Schaefer Seminary and the opportunity and how grateful I am to have that opportunity. My wife supports me. Uh, part of the spiritual blessing that God has given me is a wonderful wife who also loves the Word and uh, has encouraged me in this. And so I just can't thank you enough uh, for the opportunity, uh, for the faithfulness of those who lead and those who teach and serve in whatever capacity to support Schaefer Seminary. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm from Longview. 
I'm from Longview, Texas. Don't don't think I'm from Connecticut. I, I live in Connecticut, but y'all sent me up there, okay? All right. <laughs> that is necessary. One of my favorite uh, pastors growing up asked me when I first uh, considered uh, candidacy at Preston City Bible Church, he said, oh, Dave, you wouldn't go to the Yankees, would you? And that week I'd heard Chafer, his old lecture that said, you have to, man, you have to be willing to go where God wants you to go. And I said, I think I am going to the Yankees. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk briefly about the school and how it's impacted my ministry as a pastor of a little church in Eastern Connecticut. It's Wednesday night. We have a Wednesday night service. We had the service in Preston tonight. We talked about empty pulpits. There was an empty pulpit in my church tonight, except... We have a culture in our church where we train, where we're equipping men to get in there and teach. And that's a new thing for a lot of us in this room that we would say, hey, the pulpit is not ex cathedra. This is the place where you hold your Bible. The word of God doesn't change, but we have to study hard to make sure we're handling it correctly. Just a couple things. Um, in our church, we started a, uh, we call it fellowship dinners. It's just a little group get together we've been doing it for seven years or so and um and we want to have a little bit of bible time where we focus on it and discuss things and learn to talk about our faith we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs our churches our people really struggle to talk about the faith because i'm not a pastor so we we don't know how to articulate because we're used to sitting and listening so we want to kind of stimulate some discussion and equip for evangelism and um uh, we started doing exegesis labs you know what that is? That's when you have people that have taken Bible study methods and hermeneutics, first year Greek, first semester, first year, first, uh, 75% of the first year of Hebrew. We're going to do it again. Um, that's when those people can come together and we can take a passage and I can work through quickly because we've already done a lot of preliminaries in that, in that work. And we have five or six guys in our church that could do exegesis lab. And then they're ready to go prep their little talk they're going to do on the passage we've selected and lead in one of these little fellowship dinners. It's awesome, really a neat thing. And it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, the Bible is the Bible. It's the Word of God. It doesn't change. But our understanding changes as we carefully handle it. And that's what Chafer Seminary, the, the seminary in your church is trying to do, is equip everyone to equip those God brings us uh, to do this work. And it's a fearful thing. The, the most fearful thing to me in ministry is if I get up here and I'm not afraid, and I mean in a healthy fear of the Lord's sense, about handling the text correctly. And so we don't want to just wing it. Well, this is what the passage means to me. Well, that's great, but what does God mean by it? And, and so just a couple of things about Chafer Seminary. Right now, we have 64% more students than we did this time last year. That's growth. God is, God is growing the work. Thank you, Mike, for that number. Mike, Mike Regal told me not to tell him what those percentages represent in terms of actual numbers. Which brings me to my next point. A couple days ago, I show, or yesterday, I showed everybody the course offerings we're putting out there. Do you know you can take those classes for free, free of tuition? Do you know people in your church? That nephew that somebody has, you know, he needs to get in the Bible, and I know he wants to study. I don't know how to get him connected or whatever. However it is that someone might start taking certificate courses or, or credit courses. 
the way we're doing it, um, if your church partners, like my church does, with Chaper Seminary, as a, as a partner, um, the, this partnership model we've adopted, the school will give uh, free tuition for the people in your church. That's how, we have several people in our church that, that take advantage of that. Don't you want to come join us up in Preston, Connecticut? We'd love you to join. Come on up. That's called sheep stealing. I just pulled a big, uh, big no-no. Uh, trying to get you on. But actually, what we really want to do is you and your churches, join up. Partner with Tafer Seminary. What's, the, what's our number? Our, our church contributes $3,000 a year as a budget item that we commit to before the Lord. And uh, he provides for, uh, in our offerings for missionary giving for us to do that every year. And that enables our, our people in our church to take courses for free. But you know what else it does? It keeps the seminary going because we, uh, we need the Lord to sell some cattle to keep this thing running. We, he's always going to have to be running the cattle sales operation. And that's what we're going to pray for here in just a moment. All those courses that we're offering, there were some TBDs. I'm glad to announce there are a couple of those that have been already crossed off. Dan, Dan has said, oh, I'll teach Greek. <laughs> so has Gary Glenny and so has Jody Brown. Now I've got too many Greek professors. This is the beauty of recruiting. Wow, we, we just got pretty, pretty tough in our Greek department. Drew Freeman told me that he can teach Hebrew, and he has done it for years. Did you all know that? Sorry, Drew, I just outed you as a Hebrew professor. So the Lord is, is doing a wonderful thing here, and I'm thankful to him for it. And I want to always uh, keep it in your mind. I gave a talk about our course offerings yesterday, and within 20 minutes of putting the mic down, I heard that George Meisinger had been called home. Right after saying George cast a vision all those years ago, the day I die, if somebody in the world is able to say, without reference to my death, that I have had an impact of any kind in directing people toward the Lord Jesus Christ, I will be thankful forever. And I praise God for George Meisinger for what he's done. And I do encourage you to join me to continue praying for him and for this school. Can we pray? Father, Chafer Theological Seminary is your grace. It's your work. It's not our work. George Meisinger's work on your behalf and the power of your spirit has touched us all. And God, we praise you for that. Thank you for this man who kept telling us how important is the word of God. How important is our walk before you. How wonderful is the privilege we enjoyed today in this age to walk by your spirit. We thank you for him. We thank you for the school that he led for so long. And now, Father, we do ask for you to sell some of those cattle. If you want this work to continue, Father, we want you to let us be part of it. Provide the pastors and the churches that have the vision to train their people to benefit from the, the many gifts and talents that you provided here in this group. Father, we have so much potential here. But we need students. We need resources. Father, we, we adopt the attitude that we will tell you and ask you and we'll ask you and ask you and we'll tell your people. But we're going to keep asking you. Father, do your work here in this organization. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to leave you on one final joke. Um, it's not a joke, but it is kind of a funny thing. But I got down off the pulpit yesterday and I had thought, you know, I, I was able to kind of get them excited about coursework. 
I was, I was, I'm sorry to say I was kind of giving myself a little pat on the back. It's okay, Dave. Did all right. I was, I was nervous about it. Went okay. First person I saw when I got off the pulpit was El Presidente, Andy Woods. And you know what he said to me? He said, David, thank you for not promoting the course that I'm offering in the spring. You see, I had worked so hard to get Andy to agree to, to do this course. I don't have time. I know nobody has time. You could do it in your sleep. You know, I, all, the, all the typical phrases. I, you know, I really worked on this, and um, not really that hard. But Andy, Andy agreed to do it, and I said, oh, it's going to really help people want to take classes if you're offering a course. I mean, people are going to jump on that course, that course in Kingdom and Covenants that Andy's offering next spring, and that's B.E. Uh, help me remember that. Do you remember the course number? It doesn't matter. It's Andy Woods teaching Kingdom of Covenants. Y'all know what the textbook is? The one he wrote. All right. Um, and so I want you to be like, you may not sign up for other things, but hey, let's take that course. That'd be a really great thing to, to work on. So uh, thanks for that redirect, uh, President uh, Woods. That's BE309. BE309. Send Bev an email. She is so excited if you blow up her computer with emails. Hey, I want to take this course or that course. So y'all sign up. Thank you. We're here for one last session together. If you are here for Messianic prophecy in the prophets, then you're in the right place because this will be the grand finale of our whirlwind tour of Messianic prophecy through the Hebrew Bible. We left off uh, with the New Testament uh, usage uh, reference of Isaiah 49. And we look at, of course, this being called from the womb Matthew one twenty one. she shall bear a son, you call his name Jesus, he will save his people from their sins, and we have the, uh, the call of the servant uh, to the mission to call Israel back to God. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4. Uh, we have the idea of, uh, of, of light and the salvation of the Messiah and the idea of light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel packed into Isaiah 49 as alluded to and quoted in Luke 2, 30 through 32. And of course, the, the application that the apostles uh, made of this particular uh, psalm in Acts 13. Acts 15 tells us and expands upon uh, Peter related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Again, the, the calling of Israel back to God is followed in Isaiah 49 by the salvation that is to extend to the ends of the earth. That includes all the Gentiles who will be a people for his name, all those who would trust in the Jewish Messiah. And of course, Acts 1.8 is predicated upon not just the idea of Jewish salvation through the Messiah, but ultimately through universal salvation for all who would follow uh, the Messiah in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part 
of the earth. And then, of course, the rejection of the Messiah, the messianic figure, the servant, in Isaiah 49, which is echoed in Matthew 26, 38, and 39. And then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved. This is the Garden of Gethsemane to, Gethsemane, to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, not, uh, not as I will, but as you will. Now we move to another servant psalm, another servant uh, song, rather. Uh, and this is Isaiah 50, one that is not really ever uh, uh, included in the, in the servant songs that you think of, but nonetheless a very, very important one. And we'll pick it up with Isaiah 50, Verses 4 through 9. This is the messianic uh, uh, angle in this particular servant song. The Lord has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. We have an idea here. The idea is uh, the, the messianic training program that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord in this passage, it focuses much less on the mission and more on his training regimen. And the servant is described here as being taught by God himself. It wakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who... I was not disobedient. His training program sounded exciting, sounded uh, uh, kind of challenging. But he tells us, I won't turn back. I will not turn back. Why? Is there something challenging here? Yeah, look at this. Verse 6. I give my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. That doesn't sound like a good training regimen. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, heads up, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Mark 14 alludes to this particular passage. Some began to spit at him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps, in the face. The soldiers took him away into the palace, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling, and bowing before him. And they had, after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him, and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So we have this idea of the uh, messianic training program where the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, is learning through 
suffering. John 18, 22 and 23. One of the officers standing by struck Jesus, saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? Jesus says, why do you strike me? Hebrews 5, 8 through through 9. Did you know that I wrote a commentary on this book? Um, uh, Although he was a son. This is an extraordinary thing. Although he was a son, and we looked at that through the Psalms and uh, uh, the concept of son and David and the Davidic covenant, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Moving forward, Isaiah 52. Without question, the most important messianic prophecy in the corpus. The one that is above all others, convicting, compelling, inarguable, very difficult to challenge if you actually read what the text says. So we are going to do that. We're going to spend some time and we are going to read this text. This is by far and away the richest treasury of messianic data within the prophetic corpus. Isaiah describes the Messiah in this passage as despised and rejected, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, without esteem, and the servant of the Lord was to be rejected by the people of the Lord. And through the suffering of the Messiah, intercession would be made on behalf of all the people. This passage stands as a scriptural monument to messianic suffering. Let's take a look. Actually, it doesn't begin in verse 1 of Isaiah 53. It begins two verses earlier. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man in his form more than the sons of men. That's a record you wouldn't want. Thus he will sprinkle, this is priestly language, thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. And we get to Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form. He has no majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He has no attractiveness, no impressive appearance. And see, Israel is going to believe that his sufferings, which are many and multiple, his sufferings were brought on as a just consequence of his own sin. He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Action is in verse 4 here. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Messiah 
will be cruelly pierced through and crushed, chastened, and scourged. Yet through his suffering, he will paradoxically heal those who assumed he was receiving the just punishment for his own sins. And he will bear the nation of Israel's sorrows. And it's for their transgressions and their iniquities that he willingly will suffer and not for his own. Our griefs, he himself, our sorrows, he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Whose transgressions? Ours. Crushed for who? Our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, or by his stripes, traditional translation, we are healed. Verse 5 discloses that the Messiah will not merely suffer. He will die. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastened and scourged. Yet through his suffering, Israel is healed. Despite Israel's sin, despite their disobedience, God is diverting in this passage. What's being described is God diverting the just punishment for the nation's iniquity toward the Messiah. Doing an iniquity bypass from the ones to whom it was due, Israel, to their Messiah. He's innocent of any violence, Innocent of any rebellion, innocent of any sin. Nonetheless, the Messiah will be killed in the prime of life. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open up his mouth like a perfect unblemished lamb slain at Passover. The servant, the Evid Jehovah, the servant of the Lord, will shed his blood for the redemption of the chosen nation. The ultimate personification of goodness will bear the ultimate punishment. But his sacrifice is going to go largely unrecognized by his own people. Verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. But as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, 
Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now, make sure that you don't misunderstand, especially those of you watching on the stream. It's not like the Lord was pleased, like, <laughs> um, pleased, it gives the Lord joy. The text is communicating that it is specifically God's plan for this servant to be crushed, to be put to death. It doesn't bring joy to the Lord to crush the servant, but it does satisfy the demands for justice. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, the idea, the sacrifice of this servant is central to the divine master plan. It is the Lord's sovereign aim for the Messiah, this servant of the Lord, this Evid Jehovah, to be crushed. Why? Because this will enable the servant to do the unprecedented. What is that? To render himself as the ultimate as the final guilt offering. You see, the Messiah, the servant, would die, yet through his sacrifice would make perfect intercession, not just for Israel, but for all sinners by carrying their sins upon himself. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What? If he's crushed, if he's uh, dead, if he's got a grave, how will he prolong his days? How will the pleasure of the Lord prosper in his hand? Verse 11 adds to the the conundrum, the paradox, as a result of the anguish of his soul, in other words, as a result of his death, he will see it and be satisfied. See what? You're dead. Unless death is not the final destination for the servant. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, not just Israel, all who put their trust in him as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Huh, because he poured himself out to death. Well, again, this conundrum, this paradox, if he is dead, how then is he going to divide booty? Dead men divide no booty unless he doesn't stay dead that's the that's the question the enigma of Isaiah 53 because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors called the righteous one. By bearing the penalty for the sins of others, he's justified his people. It's an amazing prophecy. 
And as the reward for his suffering, for his death, his self-sacrifice, the prophecy tells us, Isaiah tells us, that this servant will be exalted and glorified. Because the great answer to the question, to the paradox, to the enigma of Isaiah 53, is that the murdered Messiah, the murdered servant of the Lord, must be Raised up. The ancient rabbis uh, and the rabbinic literature, there's a lot of it that strongly attests that it was the overwhelming consensus of the Jewish rabbis that Isaiah's suffering servant passage spoke of the Messiah. An honest reading of it is it's very hard not to see that. Um, first century uh, Targum Jonathan translates Isaiah 52 13, and behold, my servant, uh, the Messiah, shall prosper. He shall be exalted and great and very powerful. See, it's the Messiah. It's a paraphrase, so they don't have to beat around the bush. They can give you the interpretation. It's the will of the Lord to purify and to acquit his innocent, the remnant of his people, to cleanse the souls of sin so that many will see the kingdom of their Messiah. And he will seek pardon for the sins of many. And for his sake, the rebellion, the rebellious, shall be forgiven. There's a great overwhelming weight for the first thousand years, actually 11 centuries, following the um, Second Temple period. And in taking this passage at face value, the question during this time eventually arose is, how do you square... And this question raises itself up from the time of Isaiah forward. How do you square the suffering, rejected, and executed Messiah, very clearly here, with the supernaturally endowed, victorious, conquering hero that we see in other alternate alternate messianic texts? And somewhere along the way, because of this point, the rabbis divide the ingenious solution of dividing the messianic figure into two separate messiahs. One messiah, uh, Mashiach ben Yosef, he would die. And the other, Ben David, Mashiach Ben David, would reign. And very conveniently, in Jewish, do you know that Jewish people, uh, Jewish theology has eschatology too? It's a very well-developed eschatological picture. And, oh, there are many similarities to, uh, to our, specifically our group's eschatology. Uh, but very conveniently, even though Mashiach ben Yosef would die and Mashiach ben David would reign, conveniently Mashiach ben David would then resurrect Mashiach ben Yosef from the dead. So when did this handy device gain interpretive ascendancy? Not sure, it's not clear. Early. But when exactly, I couldn't tell you. But likely, I think that it probably paralleled or followed the apologetic success of the church's evangelists in the first century in demonstrating the identity of Jesus from the scriptures, which we saw in our first lecture, that that was their normative method. And of course, this near monolithic consensus remains the case until um, the 11th century innovation of Rashi, when all of a sudden uh, rabbis begin to uh, interpret the suffering servant as a collective representation of Israel. And so uh, Israel, we have then 
uh, the normative uh, interpretation of this passage now among the Jewish people is that Israel is suffering on its own behalf. Israel somehow uh, takes on the sins of Israel, which basic Hebrew grammar students can see past that. You don't have to be... I think maybe you have to be a rabbi to be able to see it, you know. But, and it's the paradoxical tragedy of the Jewish people, of my people, that the majority is unable to perceive that the prophet spoke so manifest, manifestly of Jesus. Well, but regardless of the volume of rabbinic opinion, uh, it's incontestable that one particular rabbi, Jesus, explicitly identified himself as the prophetic fulfillment of the Isaiah 53 passage, the one who would suffer, the one who would die, the one who would be treated with contempt and numbered with the transgressors. Let's take a little look, just a little survey, and Mark 9, and he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things, yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Allusion maybe to 50, most likely to 53. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Next chapter in Mark, same idea, same alluding back to Isaiah 52, 53, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. Luke 24, 7, saying that the Son of Man, let's be equal opportunity in our Gospels, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Luke twenty two thirty seven. For I tell you that it is written, and it must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Did Jesus think that Isaiah 53 was a powerful reference to his own situation? Yes, and he says so unambiguously in this particular passage and in the parallel passages like it. And of course, it's the scripture that Philip teaches the Ethiopian eunuch that he begins from. It's home plate from which Philip then trots around the bases with the Ethiopian eunuch as he preached Jesus to him. Frankly, if you cannot find allusion to Isaiah 53 in the New Testament, you're just not looking, right? Look harder, okay, and you will see it. Let's continue. I'm going to make some tracks. The Spirit of the Lord, Isaiah 61, such a good one. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Hold on, this is a familiar passage because it's familiar because Jesus quotes it and refers to himself, right? This prophecy is the clearest example of a combo prophecy that encompasses both the first and second advent. 
Uh, very exciting. Let's, so let's just read it through. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance for our God, of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they, Israel, will rebuild the ancient ruins, the devastation that has become Israel. They will raise up the former devastations, repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. You'll have some foreigners, you'll have some non-Jews, some Gentiles, He'll be working your land. How come, Israel? Because you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations. And in their riches you will boast. Instead of shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore they will possess a double portion in their land. And everlasting joy will be theirs. So, when we look at the first and second advent within this prophecy, the Messiah is designated as accomplishing several tasks here. First, to bring good news to the afflicted. Second, to bind up the brokenhearted. Third, to proclaim liberty to the captives and grant freedom to the imprisoned, to slaves, to sin and death, Romans 6 and Hebrews 2. And to proclaim, dare I say it, a new dispensation, a new era when everything changes. But then we also have more, more work. Who's making trouble here? Who's the troublemaker? Thou art the man. All right. All right. You know what? Sometimes, you know, I'm going to have to take away the smartphones. They have to have a certain level to be able to handle a smartphone. You can't handle a smartphone. <laughs> but the messianic figure is to proclaim judgment, vengeance, in other words, to comfort the mourning nation of Israel and to restore the nation of Israel. You see, I have two different colors here uh, that separate the Advents. Why do I separate it this way? Because that's the way Jesus did. He came to Nazareth when he had been brought up. This is right at the beginning of his ministry. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, what we just read. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he stops dead in the middle of the third verse there. The third section. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, leaving the audience, the, the, the congregation, saying, I think you forgot something. Are you a little nervous? You, 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 you closed the scroll a little, a little uh, prematurely. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. This would have gotten people's attention, as you can imagine. And indeed, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he gave his, what we call a devar Torah, or a devar, a devar uh, a word, a, a, a teaching. Uh, and he began to say to them, 
Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, that is uh, a little what we call messianic chutzpah. Uh, <laughs> that's nerve. <laughs> okay, yeah. What I just read from Isaiah, <laughs> written seven centuries earlier, today is fulfilled in your hearing. This is uh, extraordinary. But we know that our Messiah was despised and rejected. How despised and rejected was he? This is how despised, how, de- how rejected the Messiah was. How would you like your very first sermon to evoke a call for murder, right? They try to murder the guy, right? So I don't care how badly you may have wiped out in your first sermon. I dare say nobody tried to kill you, but not so for our Messiah. All right, let's move on. We've got to make some, uh, some time here. We're going to look at um, a, a complex, a series of prophecies that are going to deal with the raising up of ultimate David and connecting to the branch. Remember the concept of branch, uh, Netzer and Isaiah, Samach in, uh, in Jeremiah, and this concept of raising up David, uh, a son, an immortal son. So behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah 23, 5-8, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So one of his descendants, that righteous branch, uh, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Boy, that sure does seem to jibe with the stuff that was prophesied in the Psalms that we read last night, the uh, uh, Isaiah passages this morning. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, just as one would expect from the Davidic covenant, most promised in the Davidic covenant. But here's the surprise. I call it the Jeremiah surprise. And this is the name by which he will be called. Adonai Tzidkenu, or Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. You're going to call this coming son of David by the covenant name of God. And not like a piece as a suffix or as a beginning, you know, like uh, Elijah, you know, Yah, anything. Jonathan, my son Jonathan. This is not just a, a compound component of the name of God, of the name of the Lord. It's actually the Lord. See that? You know it because it says, you don't have to know Hebrew, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? <laughs> Jehovah. Our, so this figure, now, that's not messianic chutzpah. That's, I mean, that's, that goes beyond any kind... Uh, it's one thing if the individual calls himself uh, by the covenant name, or we'd say, for example, as he does in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. You know, uh, that's, that's one thing. But when the prophet speaking, thus saith the Lord, and says, this coming, and see, behold, behold, declares the Lord, this is Jehovah's word, This coming king, this coming son of David, will be rightfully designated as Jehovah, our righteousness. Moving on. 
Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. So when will this occur? Give me the time period. Give me at least some context. And he says right here in verse 8, But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the northland and from all the countries where I have driven them, then they will live on their own soil. So there will be... What we see in Israel today is not the future regathering. It's too small. Now, it's true that right now the population, the Jewish population of Israel is, uh, is right about parallel with the number of population of Jewish people in America. It used to be that America was the law. Now Israel is rapidly catching up to America and soon will bypass and will be the number one, the most numerous population of Jewish people in the world will be in Israel. But that's not what's being described here. A future, a future that absolutely makes the return from Egypt pale in comparison. That's when this messianic figure, Jehovah our righteousness, Jehovah Tzidkenu, will come. Jeremiah 33, very similar to it, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, future I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. Similar language to the previous passage, yes? And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Now we're sounding a lot like not only the previous Jeremiah passage, but the Isaiah passages that we looked at today. Uh, 7, 9, 11. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. That is a shout out to the Davidic covenant. See, intertextual reference is very, very important. And if you miss one of the foundational texts, like for example, if you miss out on like the Abrahamic covenant, as I tried to argue on day one, you really miss uh, the foundational truths on which the rest of the scripture is built. Certainly if you miss out on the Davidic covenant, you are really missing a tremendous amount of information, need to know, not nice to know, but need to know information regarding the coming Messiah. So anyway, this allusion to the Davidic covenant, and this is the name by which she will be called Jehovah, our righteousness. Interesting. So now we have Israel, Jerusalem, the city of the great king, inhabited and ruled by the, by, the, by the great king, will also be known by his presence, Jehovah Sidkenu. For thus, lest you think, well, Steve, you're taking a passage that obviously this is referring to Israel or this is referring to Jerusalem. This is not referring to the Messiah. This has nothing to do with the Messiah. I would refer to you verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. A reminder that this is accomplished in the days of Messiah. Going back, Jeremiah 30, 7 through 10. Alas, for that day is great, the day of the Lord. There's none like it. It was the time of Jacob's distress, Jacob's trouble, if you will. You may be familiar with that concept. Um, but he will be saved from it. It shall come up out on that day. 
declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make Jews their slaves, Israel their slaves, but they will serve the Lord their God. Israel will serve the Lord their God, Jehovah their God, and who else? David their king, whom I will raise up for them. In the last days, following the time of Jacob's distress, so fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. And do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity, and Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease, and no one will make them afraid. Again, going back to the Davidic covenant, the unprecedented era of tranquility and peace, security and safety, characterized by the rule and reign of the righteous Messiah. Now we simply learn that this will occur after a time of what's called here Jacob's distress in those days. So we know it's future. It's an eschatological promise. We move from Jeremiah to Hosea with the same concept, though. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince. This is Hosea 3, 4, and 5. Sons of Israel will remain for many days without king, <coughs> without prince, without sacrifice, without sacred pillar, and without ephod, or household idols. It's a curious promise. And afterward, afterward, after this period of time, they have no king, no Davidic king. They have no sacrifice or sacred pillar, no... They have no temple. They have no priesthood, functional priesthood. They don't even have household idols. Afterward, they're spiritually destitute. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God. Who else will they seek? David their king. And they will come trembling to Jehovah and to his goodness in those days, in the last days. Ezekiel punctuates this. Ezekiel 30, 23-24. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, some, many people take these particular passages um, and they say, well, it says David. It doesn't say the son of David. And so, therefore, we have an eschatological scheme in which we have not only a Messiah, but we also have David serving as some kind of regent, uh, a resurrected David who will really, when it says David, it really is David. And that's a legitimate uh, interpretation. It's not my interpretation. I, I take David as ultimate David, as the messianic figure, but uh, there may be some here who would like to uh, assume that when Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Hosea is talking about David, they're talking about a resurrected David. Um, but I don't think that uh, our Messiah will brook any rival, um, even in a, an assistant or a vice regent. Uh, but that's, that's just me. That was uh, Ezekiel. Was that Ezekiel 34? Oh, thank you very much. Okay, good. So there you have it. Okay. So the shepherd motivate the shepherd imagery. Thank you. Ezekiel thirty four. Wow, it's really past group of pastors. It's a tough it's a tough crowd. It's a tough crowd. You know. 
And of course, Jesus' reference of himself to me clinches this. Um, there are many passages within the Hebrew Bible that speak of God being the shepherd. Um, but uh, I believe that the Messiah is also pictured as the shepherd. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd in John 10, 11 through 15. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. I'm not a hired hand. He flees. How come? Because he's a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. That's not the kind of guy I am, in other words. I am, repeating, the good shepherd for emphasis. And I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I think that Jesus' multiple references, all of those things that he says, I am, I am this, I am that, all of those go back to messianic references in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it is our job as exegetes and preachers of the word and teachers of the word to track them all down. Let's move to Daniel because we're running out of time. Oh my goodness, I don't know if we're going to even get to the minor prophets. Uh, the suspense is killing me. All right, Daniel 7, <laughs> 13 and 14. Uh, that just tells us the Messiah is divine and capable of standing in the very presence of God himself in the heavens and is actually going to be granted eternal dominion over the entire world. Well, that's, that's a pretty big matzo ball, right? Let's, let's see how this plays out. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now the son of man imagery um, comes on the heels of, uh, of this description of all these beasts, these Gentile nations rising up and all the stuff that you see in the first few verses of, of Daniel 7. Uh, and then we have all of a sudden, I kept looking. I'm looking actually for some good news. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, not from the, not from the chaotic seas of the Gentiles, but looking up with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, someone who looks like a human individual, one like a son of man, the term bar enash, Aramaic. And he came to the Ancient of Days. We've already been introduced to the Ancient of Days. That's God. And this figure came to the Ancient of Days in the sky, in the clouds, uh, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language, I guess that goes beyond even the most linguistically flexible Israelites, uh, that does extend to uh, the nations, Gentiles, might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Lest one misunderstand the term everlasting, he clarifies, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not pass be destroyed. In this passage, we find the presentation of the preeminent eschatological, supernatural, and majestic messianic figure, this Bar Enash, the Son of Man. Daniel envisions within the clouds of heaven an exalted figure. The exalted figure is presented before the enthroned Lord, the Ancient of Days. God gives this figure, this Bar Enash, the Son of Man, dominion and glory. Well, what was the extent of the dominion and glory? The entire earth. And his reign, we know the geographical uh, extent, entire earth, 
But what about the temporal extent of his reign? It's described as eternal. And his kingdom is characterized as unshakable. I'm seeing language and concepts that remind me of the Davidic covenant. And Daniel's brief, brief yet potent portrait of this messianic figure has captured countless imaginations, not the least of which were Jewish rabbis. Because intertestamental literature is studded through with references to the big guy in this passage, none more so than the 2nd century B.C. text of 1st Enoch. And uh, let's just take a little, little look at one of the pieces of intertestamental literature that's already written by the time Jesus comes onto the stage. He, son of man, shall sow the congregation of the saints and of the elect, and all the elect shall stand before him in that day, all the kings, all the princes, the exalted, and those who rule over the earth shall fall down on their faces before him and shall worship him. They shall fix their hopes on the son of man, shall pray to him, object of their prayer, object of their worship, and they will petition him for mercy. It's an interesting thing. It's the enigmatic title, Son of Man, this Barinash, this was, this was Jesus' preferred messianic self-designation. And his use of this term for himself is studied through the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, and John. Although the phrase is uh, sometimes used in the Hebrew Scripture as an alternate means to simplify, uh, to simply rather indicate a human being, uh, someone who possesses the character of humanity, in other words. Uh, the Son of Man was not used, universally used in this fashion. We're not locked into these as a regular Joe. Jesus is not using this term, Son of Man, his favorite self-designation to indicate to his audiences and to his disciples that when I say Son of Man, I'm just saying, I'm a regular Joe. Right? Jesus uses this phrase purposely as an allusion to the vision of the Hebrew prophet, Daniel, of this divinely exalted figure, one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, who receives authority over God's kingdom from God himself, the ancient of days. After the Gospels, it's very interesting because um, as frequently as Jesus employs the term, he's the only one uh, in the entire New Testament who uses this term of, uh, of, 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 of him, uh, and uh, of, uh, the exception of Stephen, singular use at the death of Stephen. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, the Barinash, standing at the right hand of God. You know, and as the church expanded fairly rapidly behind, beyond a specifically Jewish context where familiarity with Daniel's vision of the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, could be assumed. Uh, various alternate Messianic titles rapidly came into vogue. People are like that, right? Nevertheless, this passage still proves a formidable stumbling block for those who would deny the deity of our Messiah. Uh, let's just end with Micah 5.2. Um, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. 
His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This passage provides the location of the Messiah's birth and the context around the birth. He is to come forth from the town of Bethlehem. But Micah, in this particular verse, he elaborates that revealed by revealing his true origins are to be found from the days of eternity. From long ago, how long ago? How about eternity? That reminds me of something else we saw today. Oh, yes, Aviad, father of eternity, Isaiah 9. See, my Messiah is pictured not just by Isaiah, not just by Micah, but Messiah is divine, deity, preexistent, eternal being, who nonetheless, even though he is deity, divine, preexistent, and eternal being, somehow he also will be born to rule Israel. How does that play out? Well, Mary finds out. And she uh, sings a great song, right? So uh, the context of uh, when this will happen, therefore he will give them until the time when she is in labor, has born a child, and the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, this divine being, this one born in Bethlehem, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great. How far? To the ends of the earth. And by the way, verse 5, this one will be our peace. Sar, Shalom, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Okay, so just, uh, we're not going to talk about anything, we're not going to develop anything. Um, if we look at uh, Zechariah 9, 9, you can do your homework. Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. Uh, Zechariah 12. Zechariah 14, I think that's as far as I went. This is where I want to end. A synthesis from the prophets. This is what we would glean, synthesize from our study of the prophets. First of all, the Messiah would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. So what could be gleaned from the Hebrew Bible by the time we're in the, uh, the beginning of the second temple period of Judaism? Messiah would be born of a virgin. Two, Messiah's identity would be both human and divine, his righteous eternal rule established by God himself, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Messiah would be a descendant of David, three, born in humble, not royal circumstances, led by God's Spirit, and his righteous rule extends over both Israel and Gentiles. Good news for me and also for you, Isaiah 11. Messiah would both call Israel to repentance and be a light to the nations, Isaiah 42 and 49. Again, great news for me and great news for you. The Messiah, possessing ordinary appearance, would suffer, be rejected, and although innocent, be executed in the prime of life as the means of atonement for Israel's sin. He would then be resurrected from the dead, Isaiah 52. 13 through 53. Messiah is identified as the Lord, Jeremiah 23. Also, we didn't get there, but uh, it is there, Zechariah 14, 3 and 4, uh, which you can look up uh, on your way home. 
airplane uh, or uh, whoever is uh, driving, uh, whoever is in the co-pilot in the co-pilot seat can open the scriptures and you can have a very meaningful discussion on your way home. What are you going to talk about? Sports? All right. The Messiah would be divine, capable of standing in the very presence of God himself in the heavens and would be granted eternal dominion over the entire world. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And Messiah, well, we, didn't, we certainly didn't have time to deal with Daniel 9. But that's a fascinating one. Uh, Book of Daniel, not allowed to be read by young Jewish interpreters uh, because it's very confusing. And apparently the time of the Messiah is revealed there. So there is a, it's a book that comes with a warning. But nonetheless, Messiah will arrive prior to, not, not for you, uh, but for Jewish people, it's true. This is the teaching. Don't read Daniel until you reach a certain age. Um, if you if you thought Song of Songs was a little intense, you know, how about Daniel 9? You want to protect your people. Messiah will arrive prior to the destruction of the temple, Daniel 9, 24, and following. And finally, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem despite experiencing birth. The Messiah is also divine, eternal being. It seems like such an easy equation to square, right, from our perspective. Try figuring that out without having the gospel passages to rely on. How's that going to work? And by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the Messiah would humbly present himself and his kingdom of of peace rather, to the Jewish people, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, which we did not uh, get to um, uh, look at, although very, very important because this particular passage is quoted in all four Gospels. Of course, you have the triumphal entry in all four Gospels. So as far as importance, uh, the only reason we didn't get to it is because Zechariah is seconds to last and you know we just didn't have time for it, but you can have time for it. It is always an appropriate time for you to study Messianic prophecy, right? Uh, following the rejection, his rejection by Jewish leadership, and his violent execution, the human and divine Messiah, would supernaturally manifest himself to Israel and win, finally, win their wholehearted acceptance. They will look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn. And uh, then uh, finally, the Messiah would enter the temple preceded by a forerunner, Malachi 3.1, and John, of course, leads off with the entrance of the Messianic king into his temple and the Synoptic Gospels uh, toward the conclusion, climax, right uh, before the crucifixion, right before the Last Supper, uh, right before the resurrection, with the, uh, the triumphal entrance and the grand entrance of the king to review his temple. So... There's a lot of messianic prophecy. Going back to our title, is, is the Hebrew Bible messianic? Is there messianic prophecy in the, in, in, in the Hebrew Bible? You tell me. Yes. yes. A resounding yes. Is there any person in this room who has the guts to stand up and say, I don't see any messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Bible? Right. Get out. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're done. Um, I don't think we have time for questions. Yay! Uh, <laughs> or do we? I don't know. I'll, I'll let the boss. We have time for questions? Or we're going to go to a blessing?
All we, right. We can answer so the question that we have time time for questions. Yeah. You, you didn't say, anybody here say that there's only two Messianic prophets. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, Steve, over here. Yes, thank you. Uh, Jeremiah 33, 16, yes. it refers to the Lord of Righteousness as a she. Could you explain why? Right, she, the city, the city, the, the environment in which the Messiah will rule will be called Jehovah. So, sometimes the, uh, the environment takes on the characteristics of the, of the leader. Um, Sometimes prophecy can also be beautiful poetry and poetic expression as well. Okay, good. Anybody over here? Got a guy over here, yes. Uh, okay, yeah, um, in Micah, when the Magi come to Jerusalem, they cause a stir, inquire of Herod, Yes. And the and the scribes and the leaders. Yeah, literal fulfillment. Absolutely. So okay. Yeah. So is there any extra biblical information that indicates they all jumped on the train and went down to the Bethlehem with the Magi? If, if they knew about it, why wouldn't they want? Who's to get jumping a, on a train? That's what I'm saying. Is there any? The, the Magi the, jump on the yeah. Camel. They it, jump but, into their Camelacs. And they, they ride to, to Jerusalem, they go see the king, and they, have the, they talk about the audacity to say, by the way, O king of the Jews, where is he who was born king of the Jews, as opposed to you, you, you imposter, I mean you the, appointee by Rome? I mean, the, I mean the chief priests and the scribes. Do you think they would be interested, too, to head on down there? Yeah, you know what? Uh, when, you are, uh, when you have your head... Uh, so focused on what you're doing as a chief priest, as a scribe, or whatever, you're not looking up to the skies to look for the astronomical uh, signs. And apparently that's, the, that's a great contrast to be made. All right. I expected a better question from you, fella, but all right. You know, it's almost like negative volition is blinding. Right, 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 right. Okay, anybody else over here? Did I see another hand? This right, right behind Mr. Compound over here. Uh-oh. Okay, this, will, this is it. All right, this is the final question. Okay, the pressure is on you to make it really good. Make it count. Okay. We're all counting on you. He asked for it. All right. What is your approach to sharing the Trinity so that a person doesn't fall into Messianic modalism? Mm. A fantastic. Fantastic question. And uh, if you don't mind another hour, uh, I'll answer that. No, this is a very good question. How does one communicate the Trinity? Uh, I assume you're asking to a Jewish person. They get caught up in, the, say, the United Pentecostal Church that they recognize Jesus as Lord. Okay, all right. So one, one. Yes, sir, I'm sorry. Basically, what I'm saying is not just the Jewish, but the people that come to see this video that are Gentiles, that, but that, say, for example, the United Pentecostal Church, you know, that have that influence in their okay. life. Okay, that's great. That's great. Okay. The scripture, the scripture, and I'm not just talking about the New Testament. I'm talking about the Hebrew scripture. The Hebrew scripture is very clear regarding the complexity 
of God. He's here. He's also here. Um, No one has seen him, and yet all of a sudden Moses sees him. Isaiah has a vision of him, and he's so big that his train fills the temple. And that's not a choo-choo. That's that's the royal robe filling. So we have a complexity within the Scripture. As a matter of fact, it's laid out right at the beginning in in Deuteronomy 6 with the Shema. Right? Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our, our God, the Lord is one. Really, the Lord is unique. He is the one and only. He is the incomparable God. Among all other uh, div- divinities, He is the, the true incomparable one. Right? Um, and so if we wanted to say that He was an indivisible, um, uh, uncomplex God, a simple God, we would say he was uh, Yichad. But he is Echad, compound unity. The Jewish people have recognized that. That's what Kabbalah is all about, describing the ten emanations of God. Uh, you know, I only have three personalities. Uh, if you press Kabbalah, you have ten. Uh, and they're, they're... Anyway, I am thrilled. I am grateful, and frankly, I'm relieved that the God that... I worship the God who made the heavens and the earth is more advanced, is more complex than a simple, single-celled amoeba, which is what is basically being described when we talk about one. How can I describe the complexity of God? If I could describe the complexity of God with the accuracy it requires, I would be God. I am but creature. He is creator, and I'm relieved he's a lot more complex than I am. And that's the kind of God the Bible reveals. That's the kind of God that I want to worship. Uh, And uh, so Trinity, that's three persons within one Godhead. Simple simple formula, but a complex structure. Will never be. There's not one person, not one illustration, and I don't think you, anybody in this room, has one. No matter how confident you think you are, uh, I, I have the best illustration of the Trinity uh, ever. Um, I've heard them all, right, from childhood, um, and none of them walk on all fours. They all somehow fail, which is what I would expect from a complex God who is far more complex than. My simple understanding. Praise you, brother Steve. All right. All right. Thank you, Steve. All right. Sure. Hold on. Don't do that. Oh, yes. Right. You know, um, I'm going to take you with me next year when I go back to Temple Shalom. Okay, because, uh, you know, at the end of a lecture on Christian Zionism and Jewish Zionism and everything, and we're going through Q&A and everything, and everybody's about to this little old Jewish babushka, you know, raise your hand. I have one question. Would you explain the Trinity to me? Well, we know how that goes from the Scripture. And they took stones to stone him. (laughs) So it was 1031. uh, He got five seconds. Please explain the Trinity to me. You did a pretty good job. Yeah, Yeah, standing on one foot. That's good. Okay, well, thank you, Steve. And uh, we haven't heard the last of him yet, so we're going to close. Steve will dismiss us with a benediction. Yes. Which he will explain. All right. Now, uh, it will be my privilege this evening to bless you with the ironic benediction 
When I say the ironic benediction, hear me clearly, I'm not speaking of an ironic benediction. That's something completely other. But it's an ironic benediction. And by the way, um, uh, you have been a blessing to me. Thank you so much for welcoming me with such warmth and hospitality and joy. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I will look forward to staying in touch with you. In fact, if you want to uh, receive our newsletter, uh, email newsletter, sign up on the on the page uh, on my table. Uh, I'm also available uh, to uh, do weddings and bar mitzvahs uh, at your <laughs> at your churches. You know, uh, the occasional circumcision if the occasion uh, demands. <laughs> but it is the custom of the priesthood. To those of you who know Hebrew, you know that this is the Vulcan salute, live long and prosper. No, this is the shape of the Hebrew letter Shin, the first letter of the uh, name Shaddai. And so it is the custom for the priest to extend symbolically Shaddai God, over the congregation in the blessing. So uh, not that I am a fan of Star Trek, as you already know, but uh, I'm not a Vulcan, okay? This is just the custom. So Hebrew and then English. Yivarechecha Adonai v'hishmarecha Yadonai v'navalecha May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face upon you. And be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance to you. And give you peace. Amen. Good night everybody.